to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 28. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to be here. I know this pandemic has had a major impact in many of our lives, including IEP Radios, and uh, we're happy to get this up and running again. We're going to start off with a series uh, called Coffee Break Series, where we spend less time diving deeper into any particular topic and just really give some fundamentals to really help you folks out there. We know it can be stressful listening to a two hour podcast. So our goal is 30 minutes or less to cover the topics that are being brought to our attention. Uh, I recently reached out to a lot of social media platforms and there was a huge response. Thank you so much for those of you who did do that. And uh, one of the most common questions we got uh, was what does a good IEP inspection look like? So I'm going to do my best to um, provide some pearls for you to take away from today's discussion. I'm also going to be sharing my screen at various times. So here we go. First and foremost, uh, we'll start off with what may seem like a very silly elementary thing, but I would argue is probably one of the most fundamental important thing, and that's that your IEP demonstrates critical thinking skills and shows a genuine interest in your home and situation. I get it. I get it. This person doesn't need to show up and, you know, get into information that you might say is too personal. But what we oftentimes see too much is a lack of that. It's, it's just you're, another, you're just another appointment. Um, it, they're there for maybe 30 minutes. They, you know, give you a bill and that's it. You need to see, see an IEP that's starting to demonstrate that they're not just looking at one single point of data. They're, they're taking a look at the history, any visual evidence any sample data, which we're going to get into this stuff a little bit deeper in a minute, takes into consideration your personal issues, uh, health concerns, logistics, budget, and really is trying to apply it all to still honor your health, but create some sort of pragmatic solution for you. And this type of ideal IEP is harder to come by, right? But this would be the goal. Somebody who can definitely show that they care, that they're willing to sit down and give you a minute to understand your situation, because in the end, that will likely yield uh, a better result for you. Now, into more of the fundamentals, I think one thing you definitely want your IEP to have is related building science knowledge. So for a moment, I want you to think about pathways of air, gaps and cracks, interstitial cavities. There's these pathways that exist. They're not hermetically sealed, can lights, electrical outlets, uh, the subfloor that separates your ground level from your crawl space. And there's a long list, but there's these gaps, oftentimes uh, not visible to the naked eye, which allows for contaminants to enter or exit, depending on another thing to consider, which is driving forces. So think temperature differentials, pressure differentials, moisture differentials, a strong gusty wind outside that helps push said contaminants through these pathways and into ultimately the living spaces of the home, as an example. Having that basic knowledge is important and it helps um, an inspector along with a good basic knowledge of construction and plumbing to help identify areas of concern. So you want to ask them, what is their uh, knowledge in that? What do they know? Uh, what Have them explain to you, have them give you their elevator speech when it comes to the related building sciences. What you don't want is an IEP that plays doctor. And some of you know what I'm referring to. Um, it's, it's not, we're not talking about an IEP here that shows up to your doorstep and can sympathize with basic understanding of your chronic illness. Um, and tries to apply that, that would be a healthy, respectful, um, you might say, requirement for an IEP to be able to talk with you about. 
What I'm talking about are the people that come in and give you the top 10 worst things that mold or any other contaminant can do. And when they deliver that information, it, it seems off or inconsistent with the nature of the conversation, almost like it's fear mongering uh, to help ultimately justify their work or justify the number of samples they're gonna collect or any number of things. You, you don't want them to play doctor. They're not certified to do that in virtually all cases. You, they need to be able to uh, stay in their lane. They are really, if anything, looking at the health of your home or your building. That's where it should stay. I think there needs to be a, a dynamic uh, uh, where there is the, clini the clinical piece being brought into the environmental piece so that that IEP can respect it and look at it and, and apply anything that they might be able to take from it. But beyond that, they're not there to tell you what your symptoms might reveal and what we're afraid is going to happen is they might mislead you or you might misunderstand them. And, the, and that's just an added stress you don't want. Another thing that, and I'm going to share my screen in, in a moment, is you want an IEP who has the ability to use some of the more common tools out there to physically locate um, contaminants in the home. And what I mean by that is uh, a lot of times when I work with uh, my clients, they'll find a good inspector that does a good job with the visual stuff and all that, but they don't have a tool that they know or like to use to pinpoint it. For example, uh, as I'm sharing my screen here in just a second, it's one thing to be able to take a, a source ID sample because you think something looks like mold or a swab sample, or perhaps you're even taking um, uh, an air sample to get an idea of what your exposures may look like or settled dust, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but what I'm talking about is to try and actually identify where it's coming from. And this particular um, skill set, uh, believe it or not, is not too common. A lot of IEPs that I have come across have a good basic knowledge. And then you'll ask them, well, what if I think there's mold in this wall? How should I sample to determine that? And they'll say, well, I'll just take a five minute spore trap sample, you know, a couple of feet away from that wall. And if it doesn't identify anything, you're, you're fine, you're safe. There's so many things wrong with what I just told you. Um, there, uh, there are fragments that likely are present that are not going to be detected with that type of sample technique. Um, at, at the end of the day, the major focus here is you want them to be able to perform something that is more exacting. Uh, a very common tool that I use is cavity sampling. Cavity sampling, uh, whether it's in a ceiling, a wall, or under a kitchen sink cabinet like you see here, is a great tool to use to provide numerical evidence to support whether or not you believe that there is a, a source in there. No, this thing does not quantify it. It's if somebody finds a quote unquote, a bunch of mold in a cavity sample that doesn't translate to square feet worth of an issue. They might've just drilled into a square inch of mold and that's all there was, but the numbers make it look to a, a lay person like there might be 10 or 20 feet. But qualitatively it can provide uh, some evidence that there's something there, especially an easier to get cavities such as underneath. Every sample has its limitations. Some walls have insulation in it that make it more difficult to sample, and that's all true. But what we're talking about right now are various tools that you can use to um, inspect that particular cavity. Another uh, lesser known, starting to increase in awareness uh, technology available is one called Mycometer. And to be clear, I have no financial affiliations with any of these companies or devices. This is just me sharing my personal experience. Mycometer is a um, non-intrusive way to sample for um, basically um, fungal enzymes and a lot in application where you'll likely see it as someone sampling at the bottom of a wall or next to a bathroom cabinet. And they're looking for evidence of, again, 
a source and, and a, a few IEPs that I know specifically, that's their primary method of identifying sources. And it's a great tool to have. And so you want to ask your inspector, your IEP, do you do micrometer? Do you do wall cavity samples to help pinpoint sources? Um, there are situations where they're not going to have those options. And sometimes they'll bring up boroscoping. And this is a visual device um, that can, you know, a camera that can go into a wall and look. Again, uh, more intrusive. It's limited to visual evidence. There's no numerical data. They may or may not be able to see evidence of mold or microbial growth or water staining or damage. But the point is that if you find an IEP that's going to check off the other boxes that we'll be talking about today, but let's just say that they don't do micrometer or wall cavity sampling, that doesn't mean that they're not a good IEP. Um, everyone has their skill sets and what they're used to doing, their comfort level. There's other liability concerns um, when you start drilling into walls that some people will have. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's differing opinions on that. But the point is, is that that would be a great way to help pinpoint sources. Moving forward. When we talk about the same IEP, let's now consider what they should do when they, when they get to your home. You may have some of these discussions on the phone with them when you first reach out, but let's see what it may look like. First of all, discuss, does the IEP discuss your concerns? Why are they there in the first place? Are they the right fit for you? You know, that part probably would have been a phone call. Normally, when the IEP is in your house or your building, they're going to be taking down notes. It's not too different than a, cl a clinical office visit. You know, tell us the history of the home. What do we know about it? Any past moisture events, floods, leaks, uh, even fires, things that have happened to the structure that it has experienced that might be useful to help locate sources of contamination. Because this information will help the IEP form their hypothesis and figure out, okay, what am I going to focus on? Okay, sure, you want them to look at the whole house, no problem, but they're still gonna to have to create something. They, there's a narrative they're gonna be open-minded about, and they're gonna see if they can prove or disprove that with the following piece, which is typically some visual inspection. I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about visual inspections. And again, these are this discussion is more about minimums, but I wanna share with you something about like, kind of like the tools that you might expect uh, uh, an IEP to bring to the table. So first and foremost, a good pair of eyeballs and a flashlight goes without saying, but that's important because a lot of what the IEP can identify will probably be done with this. Um, wow, look at that baseboard over underneath that window. It's swelling or look at the paint grouping. Um, he likely identified that because he saw it, he or she saw it, that kind of thing. Another common tool that you'll see inspectors bring to the table are infrared cameras and uh, even the temperature and humidity meters. Now I'll talk a minute about the infrared camera. The infrared camera, there's, there is a little bit of bad information out there. Some people think that it's a mold detector or that it detects moisture. Technically, an infrared camera is looking for thermal differences. It's looking for changes, and it represents those changes in, in color to help the, uh, the user of the infrared camera start to identify where there might be a moisture problem. Uh, a roundish-looking circle uh, on the lower level of a, on a ceiling that is directly underneath a leaking toilet above. Um, maybe that's a water leak. And it's a great way to survey a home. And then usually you confirm that spot with a moisture meter. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. This is great for current or active leaks, recent leaks even. But if you've had a leak three years ago, or even a month or more, it may have dried up. And again, some of us um, have experienced clients who think that 
it's only the new stuff, uh, let's say mold growth will pick on it, that is a concern when a lot of the folks out there are worried about the inflammatory effects or allergenic effects or potential toxigenic effects of mold. And whether mold is alive or dead, the research strongly suggests that it's a concern. So in that respect, we're not prejudiced. We don't care if the mold is alive or dead or recent or old. We, we care that it's there. And so just know that if somebody does an infrared screen on your house and says they don't see a problem, you're fine. That, that's not the case. You, you may be fine, and we certainly hope you are, but there may be an old source. And that's why they're using things like a flashlight to look for other signs that may indicate an, an existing. Maybe you had a leak that occurred underneath the window and there was a swollen out baseboard. It's been there for five years. They wouldn't have necessarily seen that with the infrared camera, but their pair of eyeballs and a flashlight did. Now, there are other tools that will come to the table. I mentioned earlier temperature and humidity uh, meters. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they, oftentimes inspectors will use this, which can help them in a number of ways, uh, including uh, identifying whether humidity or moisture levels are too high, um, the potential for the dew point to be reached and, and, and moisture to condense or condensate in your home. That could be an issue. Um, and it can also help with other things like potential driving pathways, hotter areas versus cooler areas and that sort of thing. That's usually a basic fundamental tool to bring to the table. And sometimes a temperature humidity gauge is also built into um, other devices to kind of do multiple things at once. Speaking of particle counters, those can be um, a great tool. I have one. Uh, it really depends uh, on the situation. I think for me, holistically, a particle counter is great at showing general relationships uh, of what sorts of sizes of particles at different sizes are present in a given room. Say, for example, if a spouse is debating whether or not replace carpeting in the living room and they have hard flooring in the kitchen area and they want to do a side-by-side -side comparison, um, sometimes it can be a, a really cool tool to show that relationship of how many more particulates are in the air. And, and, and there's other ways in to use this as well in, in uh, remediation projects to test the uh, performance of a HEPA air filtration device, that sort of thing. But this could be an also good primary real-time tool to use. Um, obviously, there are others, a VOC meter. Um, we think about chemicals, and is there a way to screen the, the, this building in a way that doesn't cost an arm and a leg? Um, these meters do not detect, they don't identify specific VOCs, and they don't detect every known VOC to man. Usually, they have a bulb in there that allows that meter to detect a certain range, if you will, of VOCs. And the point we're making is that that could be a great tool to screen. It's real time. It offers instantaneous results, and that's great. It's not uncommon to also see uh, an IEP show up with a carbon dioxide meter. Um, you get into ventilation effectiveness, um, how stuffy is the house. Uh, carbon monoxide can be obviously a safety issue. Sometimes that's, that's there. But some of these other devices that you're seeing, like a formaldehyde or a hydrogen sulfide meter, comb combustible gas detector, and even a manometer, which you know I, in my early years, I had one of these, uh, are not necessarily required. Um, I would say the manometer probably is close to when you're looking for uh, identifying pressure relationships. If you're trying to figure out how something is going from location A to location B, a manometer can test the pressure differentials across a boundary, like say inside versus outside or from room to hallway or that sort of thing. It's a great forensic tool. But again, if the IEP checks off all the other boxes, but he or she doesn't have a manometer or a hydrogen sulfide meter, that doesn't mean they're a horrible person. I think the fundamentals are probably the top few category, the top line of tools that you guys are seeing, and um, possibly in close second place would be this one, this one, Volto Organic, uh, the VOC meter and the manometer, and the carbon dioxide meter. But again, 
I'm trying to express to you minimums because if we got into maximums, uh, it would look like the Ghostbusters showing up to your house and there'd be you know $50,000 in gear and you wouldn't be able to afford that individual. Okay, so moving on. This individual performs this inspection. They're looking throughout the house. And now what about the topic of sampling? In my experience, a good IEP is going to sit down with you and they're going to review the findings. They're going to recap on what they know about the history. They're going to say, what is obvious? What can they, what have they identified that appears to be an obvious issue that can, they can already recommend or address? If it's obvious, maybe sampling is not needed. There might be reasons where it is, legal reasons, or just because someone's curious. But there's also other issues where it's not obvious. Well, there's some water standing here, but we don't know if there's a mold problem behind that wall. Or um, if it's an issue of, well, we don't know whether or not we want you to do the cleaning or a professional to do it. And I know that's a whole other um, likely series we'll have to talk about too. But the point is, is that sampling does have its place, but we don't assume you need to a sample right off the bat. So let's go under the assumption that sampling is justified, it's recommended. I'm gonna go through a few different types of common contaminants um, and, and then we'll, we'll talk about you know, some options there. First and foremost, uh, mold sampling. Uh, this is obviously, if nothing else, a surrogate for water damaged buildings. It's often used even when other things like bacteria are, are suspected to exist. We do have the option to do bacteria sampling, but the point is, is that molds has been around for a long time and many IEPs uh, understand the physiology of these molds, what they, how they grow, when they grow, um, that kind of a thing. And so it's a useful tool for them to use and for you to consider. There are, as I mentioned before, samples that are designed to uh, sample and identify what is right in front of your face. Uh, I think that's mold underneath the kitchen sink cabinet. So I'll pull a tape lift or there's condensation mold near uh, on a wall. And so you want to tape it or swab it. These are very common and, and readily used. Sampling cavities, we talked about that to help source identify. And then exposure related, you get into the topics of air sampling and dust samples. And here's what I'm going to tell you about that. I'm not going to dive into the details of that one because episode two on IEP radio goes into that topic. But the point is, is you want to be able to talk with the IEP and see what are their options? What do you use to help identify mold if you see something that looks like it? What do you do to sample if it's otherwise hidden, like in a wall cavity? How do you address the concern of there might be a source in there or under that cabinet? And then, of course, how do you sample um, the air and or the surfaces to address exposure? And do they have a basic understanding of the limitations and strengths of each of these types of samples? And those, some of those limitations and strengths are discussed in, in, um, in episode two. The other thing is chemicals. I want to see if I can scroll to that real quick. Um, I mentioned to you before about the VOC meter. It's a real handheld meter that you can, they can have and they can, they can help you with to identify uh, sources. However, sometimes getting the names of the chemicals or being able to at least separate them out and to get a panel of them identified is a useful tool for the inspector. Maybe it will help them um, correlate it with a source or maybe uh, it's more sensitive uh, than their VOC meter that they're using. You know, typically a good handheld VOC meter, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to and, and, and what will range anywhere from say 4,000 all the way up to 10,000. If you're using a $300 meter that you bought on Amazon and it has a VOC meter on there, chances are the sensor in that equipment is not as good as those other meters I'm mentioning. However, there's a growing number of IEPs that are also taking samples that are to be shipped off for analysis. Um, as you can see on the page right now, there's sorbent tube testing and there's a couple different ways of doing that. For larger room areas, a lot of times there's SUMA canisters um, 
And there's also grab bags, uh, Tedler air samples, all of which are designed to grab a volume of air and send off for analysis to see if there's, you know, what sort of chemicals in that panel that they're looking for exist. And this can be a great tool if you're chemically sensitive, if you're wondering about the new kitchen cabinetry that you installed and whether or not it's off-gassing, uh, or whether you suspect something and you want some numerical evidence to tie it to that, these are great ways and great options uh, to sample. Again, what is the benefit, and this is what you would discuss with the IEP, to sample like this versus a handheld meter, um, you may not need to go to this level of analysis right away. You might start off with the general screening. The other thing I wanna to talk to you about today about what does a good IEP inspection look like is the growing awareness about EMF or electromagnetic fields. EMF has, has been around for a while, um, and depending on what historic reference you read, um, some will argue it increased uh, in the amount of exposure after World War II. Um, we, you know, Earth has a magnetic field. You know, we, we, it's not like we're around zero exposures, but there's been a growing awareness about, you know, how does this play a role in your life? And it, it really is its own field. Um, and personally, I'll just share with you the following. I reached out to a, a professional, his name, Jeremy Johnson, his name's mentioned here and had a great virtual consult with him. I recommend that as a first step for you if you're thinking about EMF, especially if you're new to that, because professionals like Jeremy who offer these virtual consults can walk you through the basic fundamentals and help you identify low hanging sources and things you can do uh, for a reasonable price to uh, improve your environment or lessen the EMF. And there's also these uh, more affordable meters that you can buy uh, which somebody like Jeremy Johnson can walk you through. But as it relates to the, a professional like an IEP, they may or may not have background in EMF and, and or be able to bring any sort of real meter. Or, or if they do, it's a meter that looks like more of the, the homeowner DIY starter kit type thing. There are um, growing professions. Um, there are industries that focus on EMF and professionals that um, actually provide that type of service and typically you know, a full assessment may be, you know, pretty substantial, you know, uh, at least a grand or so, depending on what, but these professionals are using um, equipment that is much more sensitive and directional and who can help pinpoint sources that perhaps the homeowner starter kit misses. The point for you to hear is that if you're talking with an IEP and, and you do already have EMF, on the radar, no pun intended, as a concern, then you might want to talk to them about what is their experience, what kind of tools are they using, and determine whether or not that IEP, which you may still use, um, should or should not include the EMF assessment, and maybe go reach out to um, another party. You, I would recommend if you don't have a clue where to start, go find Jeremy Johnson, um, uh, EMF Consulting, and have him set up an appointment. He's very reasonable. Have him walk you through the home, see what you guys can figure out, and he might even be able to help you locate a person uh, in your area. Okay, so three different types of groupings, if you will, of contaminants. Um, sampling's done, You've the, the, the professional has walked through the house, they've sent samples off for analysis. What next? You're hoping for a report. And what a good IEP report typically includes are findings, their conclusions, and recommendations. Now, I want to take a moment uh, to talk about the recommendations. I've seen a number of reports where there were findings, there was the inspector's opinions, and if there was an issue, the recommendation was, like, say, for mold, you know, 
hire a mold remediation company, remediate as needed, and that's it. And that oftentimes leaves the client really feeling helpless because it's not that detailed. It's very general. Um, you perhaps didn't know this, but maybe what you were looking for was a step-by-step -step protocol that a mold remediation company could follow. And given you want third-party separation, you don't, you know, in, in many cases, except extreme exceptions, you don't want the inspector, the IEP to be the same person that's doing the remediation. For the same reason, you can hope that the IEP can provide valuable protocol for a third-party remediation company to follow. So third-party separation. Well, if they don't provide that detailed protocol, you really don't know if what the remediation company is doing is even following those practices. In fact, we've even seen it go as far as a company does provide you with the remediation recommendations. You then hire a mold remediation company. They basically tell you, yep, we'll follow it. But then you look at their protocol and you'll find out that 20 to 40% of it is not the same. So it's important to find an IEP that not only writes a report with findings and conclusions, but detailed recommendations to address the areas of concern that were identified. Now, I want to share my screen with you again um, on something here. If you want to learn more about the actual best practices of mold remediation, um, I talk about those fundamentals in my four-part remediation series. Uh, episodes 12 and 13 are really the meat and potatoes of that how to set up containments, things to consider, how to clean, that sort of thing, the order of cleaning, discussion about chemicals and, and, and antimicrobials and why we don't, do and don't like them. Um, and if you want to dive deeper into the sciences, um, uh, I recommend you go on survivingmold.com's website and find this document, the Indoor Environmental Professional Panel of Surviving Mold Consensus Statement for Microbial Remediation, um, released and published in 2020. Myself and a number of other individuals spent about 18 months um, putting this document together. And really, there's a lot of great information in there about engineering controls, um, a lot of hot topic stuff, including um, misting versus fogging. That's a huge one right now in our industry. I would encourage you to go on there and find this free available PDF document. Um, and that way you can flip to any particular topic of consideration uh, and, and get more information because you're going to need that when you're talking with the remediation company and you want to be an ambassador for best practices, but you don't have somebody like myself or other colleagues who can just teleport themselves and be there for you as much as we wish we could, I want you to have that information ready to go. So that's a huge thing. Uh, let's talk about, okay, so we've talked about that report, obviously, um, and giving you information. If you, do, if you do get a mold remediation estimate, you obviously want to get two or three kind of keeps everybody honest. Again, what are their step-by-step -step protocols? A lot of times you'll ask a remediation company, um, please provide me with your estimate and, and your protocol and what you do. And they'll say, sure, no problem. And then you'll get something in the, your email and it'll just be their estimate. It won't be a step-by-step -step protocol showing like step one, step two, step three. So make sure you're very clear and you ask them, I don't just want an estimate, but I'd like you guys to give me a step-by-step -step protocol on each thing you do, including setting up containment, engineering controls, techniques for remediation, removal of those contaminated items, and what do you do in clean, your cleaning to clean the air and the surfaces, and what order do you do it in? What's first, what's second, what's third, and that kind of a thing. The big thing that also comes up is credentials. Um, I'll pull up my screen again. Um, I wish there was a singular site 
that provided a one-stop shop for you that if you saw what they had, you go, oh, they have this certification. This is definitely the person that I'm going to use. Fortunately, it's not like that. In our industry, there are a number of certification bodies or organizations that certify professionals like myself, acac.org is one, normi, N-O-R-M-I.org, for those of you just listening is another. The AIHA.org site has their own certifications. Um, ABIH, um, typically this is where you hear of CIHs coming out of certified industrial hygienists and even uh, board certified safety professionals. Each of these major disciplines um, sometimes tend to focus like on more industrial or safety. Um, ACAC and Normie, I think, tend to be a little bit more broad stroking uh, to cover more. But it, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's what is their specific knowledge about indoor air quality for mold, for residential, for working with people with chronic illness and low dose uh, exposure concerns. I know that some of my colleagues in the community would say that if a person was, for example, a CIH, which implies industrial, that they must not be an appropriate person for your home. But yet one of my closest colleagues that I know is a CIH, and he is definitely not that individual. He dives deep, he goes into the details, um, and he would be the perfect set for you. And I also know people that carry my certifications, which primarily fall under this organization, and don't think that they really understand um, chronic illness and that sort of thing. So that's why we're really talking about this is it's not the acronym at the end of the name that's going to automatically say, yep, this is the company for you. You definitely need to use this company. Um, it's, it's a way for them to get the foot in the door and have that discussion to talk with them up front about the things that we've shared today. Um, I will give you this information. I know there's probably other resources out there to search for people, but this is what I know. ACAC has a find certificates tab. You can go on there. You can find people with certifications in your area. A lot of times um, uh, you're looking, if you're looking for the IEP, somebody with a CIEC or a CMC are your higher level type certifications. You can learn more about their certifications here. Um, and also um, International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. Uh, they have a great article, by the way, on what is an IEP um, that's available in PDF version that you guys can download too as a kind of a general reminder um, of, of things to think about. But they have a Get Help page, and it's great because you can click on it, and you can put in your zip code, and you can sort by, say, IEP or medical professional, and, 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 and find a number of people in your area. Um, Surviving Mold does not have a, a search field for IEPs. They do for uh, physicians. But if you know of a physician and that's part of that group and you feel like that is kind of, you know, what your doctor's doing, then ask your physician, who do they use? They might have a local village of professionals in their area um, that have kind of proved themselves, vetted themselves uh, with working with clients like yourself. And at the end of the day, people tend to recommend folks that do good work, not people who do bad work. So that might end up being your best way to go. Okay, everybody. So that's it. Thank you very much for your time. And I'll see you in the next episode. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. 
Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.